Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today is Lisa Brakovich. She's a direct-to-consumer marketing growth strategist, a subscription business model expert, and she's a fractional CMO at so many different brands, countless brands, with more than 25 years of experience. She currently serves as the founding partner and chief marketing officer at CMO Syndicate, which is a global team of senior marketing leaders who work as fractional or interim CMOs at a lot of the organizations that they're embedded within. So Lisa, so excited to have you on this episode. Thanks for joining me. Great to be here. So a lot of us like growing up for you as a child, like if your teacher would have asked you, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what was your answer to that? So my answer was a fashion designer. (laughs) And throughout your career, have you found yourself working with fashion brands? Not that much. It's funny. I didn't start out wanting to go into marketing. I actually... I started sewing when I was at age 13. My first job was actually in a fabric store and I got very into fashion design, but I wanted to go to UCLA for undergrad. And as you know, UCLA is not a technical school. So I became a design major with essentially a minor in fine art, but it was a sociology class that I took as an elective Mm -hmm. that really got me excited about marketing. And part of the class was studying the impact of subliminal images in advertising back in the 70s and 80s. And when I saw that you could modify group behavior through marketing and advertising, I just got hooked. So that's how I bridged into marketing from there. You and I actually, one of the things that we had in common is like one of our early jobs were both in retail. You were at a fashion fabric store. One of my first retail jobs was at Best Buy. And like, I remember just like understanding the power of like different end caps and product placement right. and like packaging right. and like, and to have somebody walk in completely blind. And we live in a different world now where consumers do way more research before they walk into a brick and mortar store. But it literally is the difference between two different packages and the few words that you have there that make a difference in the, cons- in the consumer. And like, I saw that day in and day out. And was fortunate enough to be able to like grow through that organizations and then work on marketing for financial service products. And that was kind of like my accidental foray into marketing because oh, that's great. episode just kind of joking, but like nobody grows up and like in fourth grade is like, I want to be a digital marketer <laughs> right. working on DTC <laughs> strategies for subscription boxes that are going to exist in 20 years from now, but are not really even a thing today. But- I did have one boss that knew he wanted to do that and wanted to work at one of the companies that I worked at from an early age. But that's the only person I've known. (laughs) Yeah, good for him for having to figure it out and knowing exactly where he wants to go because my career has not been that linear. And if anything, I'm like up over backwards, sideways and over and around. And to some extent, I think that makes for a great marketer being able to understand like a lot of the different functions that you have to either work with, get budget from, or be able to influence throughout your career. Absolutely. For you, like you really have become a go-to expert in the D2C space. And like, how was it that you narrowed into that as a passion? And like, what does somebody need to know about D2C that's like different than so many different other types of business models? Well, I was really fortunate that I started my career 
accidentally in D2C marketing. The first job that I had was for an extremely successful sweepstakes company back in the day, a competitor of Publishers Clearinghouse. But this company was so successful and so profitable. I mean, it was almost as if we didn't even have a budget cap. We tested every single solitary element. It was known within the industry as the top school, if you will, for direct marketing. I'm a creative person, but I'm also an analytical person. And I just got so enthralled with the ability to be able to see how something you just did performed. And I also like to win. So (laughs) the metrics, direct-to-consumer marketing, they allow you to see exactly how your efforts are doing. I learned so much about human behavior, what I could do that would modify that behavior, what people were thinking and why and how to change that. And still to this day, I just find it fascinating. I don't think I could ever work as a straight brand CMO Mm -hmm. without getting results. I'm just very results and data oriented. Yeah, as a lot of direct marketers are. And I mean, some of the brands that you've worked with, you're taking a peek at your LinkedIn profile, Jenny Craig, Proactive, The Teaching Company. I mean, these are essentially like household names that you've had a part of being able to grow their direct-to-consumer journey. In the direct-to-consumer world, like heading into 2023, there's been a lot of changes, right? Technology has gotten a lot easier. You've had players like Shopify that have made it Fundamentally, anybody who's setting up a booth at a farmer's market can also set up a Shopify store. That's different than the world's in the past in terms of investment in e-commerce. And then there's also been players that have really made it possible to play with different financial models, whether that's Mm -hmm. the buy now, pay later type vendors or the ability to be able to stand up some type of subscription. As a marketer, what's important for you on a new brand to be able to set a foundation for success? Well, I primarily work with subscription-based brands. So I've been doing that for almost the last 20 years. And I'll tell you, everybody thinks subscriptions are fairly new and that they just came around when Amazon started in the last 10 to 15 years. But if you think back, they've been around as long as newspaper subscriptions. Mm -hmm. And then if we look back at the old book club and CD club days, I mean, that's when it really got more involved with direct-to-consumer marketing. But what companies don't realize is the financial benefit of a subscription program can be so significant if you do it right. Mm -hmm. And many companies just think it's a, oh, I just got to provide a way for people to get ongoing shipments. And I just like give a 10 or 15% lower price and I set up the shipping and I'm done. But if you don't do it well, you're not going to get the higher customer lifetime value that you can get if you do it well. And on top of that, people that don't understand why a subscription program is valuable to begin with, they don't know that the predictable revenue and inventory that you can get from that, it greatly helps with budgeting. It greatly helps with forecasting. It helps with Mm -hmm. investors. Subscription companies can get a two to three X higher valuation. But the problem is that many companies that have either not done it or have done it and aren't doing right, it can have a negative effect financially and on the brand if it's not done well, or it can just be like a very lackluster program. And that comes from result of a poor strategy. So there are surprisingly 
many, many different aspects that go into designing and optimizing and monetizing a subscription program. So given that I primarily work with those types of companies, that's one of the first things that I look at. And it's very easy to see the low hanging fruit. And I get excited (laughs) 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 because it's like, oh, okay, well, this, this, this. And some of the things are flip the switch wins. Some of them Mm -hmm. take a little bit longer to put together and execute, but they can make a huge difference. And I've seen that happen with many of my clients and companies that I've worked for. Yeah. And the KPIs just fundamentally change in a subscription business. And so just as you said, like in every business, there's going to be levers that you have to drive, but going into subscription churn is something that should be at a forefront. And I think a lot of brands that I've worked with, to your point, think it's as simple as like installing a plugin into their Shopify store, giving right. a discount, and now you're set up and go. But when you take a look at like reten- strongest brands that are doing this, they are sending emails before packages go out. And then it's actually an opportunity to be able to add something to an existing package where you don't have to pay for shipping. Or my one of my favorite subscriptions, not a sponsor of this show, is Element. It's L-M-N-T. And they sell basically packets that you pour into water. And it basically gives you like the nutritional value of like a Gatorade or a Powerade without any of the... I think I've seen that. Is that on Shark Tank? I would not at all be surprised if it okay. was a shark. I think there's something was similar like brand. that. Yeah. yeah. But LMNT, not a sponsor of the show, but like you pour it into your water. And like one of the things that I like love with them is like I started out just uh, as a consumer, I think coming across it in a Whole Foods, trying it, loving it, and then just going like, huh, I wonder what other flavors they have on their website because not everything was available in, in brick right. and mortar. I go on their website and I'm just like, huh. I'm not going to pay for shipping, like do the subscribe and save. And then next thing I know, they're rolling out new flavors and there's a complimentary flavor packet. And it's the journey that they've taken me on as a consumer from like first introduction and brick and mortar to being a direct customer, to getting me on a subscription, to surprise and delighting me with new flavors as they come out where I don't even have to buy a whole box. It's just a few of them included in the shipment that I already have. And now my subscription is multiple flavors, or I have the ability without having to log into my account to be able to switch flavors. I think like a lot of marketers and a lot of founders, when they think about subscription businesses, like they're not thinking about, they're just thinking of the basic strategy without even understanding like the levers that this now introduces to be able to grow and expand the base. It's great to hear that they're doing that process so well, and also that you've recognized it. Yeah, I mean, I recognize it because the increasing amount of money that they're pulling out of my wallet. <laughs> but you're gladly <laughs> and, doing it. You're gladly. And I'm, I'm gladly doing it. And it's a product that I love and it's keeping me hydrated, it's keeping me healthy. And right. But they've done a good job of like combining the offer with the product and the technology to be able to pull it off. Tell me about like, you don't have to mention the brand, but like give me an example of like a brand that rolls out subscription and it just bombs. Like, what is it that causes subscriptions to fail? And what are the mistakes that leaders oftentimes can accidentally make when they're trying to roll out a subscription program? Well, there's a variety of them, but I'll say that one of the biggest issues up front that's a common issue is you set up the program where your subscription customers have a discount on merchandise or services, whatever your product is, but you are now continuing to discount to everybody. And that discount price is lower 
than your subscription price. So it mm. really gives no benefit to those that are subscribing. Subscribing. Yeah. And there was a really great case study on that that I'll just summarize really quickly because it sums it up. But so Restoration Hardware, before they redeveloped their membership program, mm-hmm. they were heavily discounting. They were losing their brand image. They were losing business. Stock price was going down. I mean, they were really in trouble. And they decided to develop this membership program, which they now have. It's about $150 a year and you get the basic benefits of most programs with discounts and whatnot. But they instituted this. Everybody was worried. Their stock price took a plummet right at the beginning. But over time, the success that they had with that program, I want to say it was up 300% the stock price from when they instituted it just a few years later, significantly beating their category, beating the S&P. And because they were so successful, other retailers, brick and mortars, started to try to emulate this program. So Old Navy, Banana Republic, all those guys tried to emulate it, but none of those other programs worked. And the main reason was they were continuing to discount and have sales within their store. So there was really no benefit of being a subscribing member. Restoration Hardware did not do that. And they really made being a member be exclusive and the benefits were significant. And what I love is they didn't take a brand hit. I think when you have so many other brands that heavily discount, it becomes hard then to be able to maintain that premium value and the premium perception and restoration hardware has done a good job. I think number one, like preserving that within this membership program. And number two, like they really make it a no brainer. Like if you're purchasing a bedroom set and you don't buy the into this members program for that year, like you are paying significantly more if you're right. buying a few pieces of furniture. Exactly. And so even if you don't intend on being a member long-term, it's like that purchase, the numbers make sense right away on that single purchase to do it. And then once you get hooked into the restoration hardware ecosystem and they're doing a whole play with cafes and restaurants and kind of expanding in how people even know of or think of restoration hardware as well. What a great example of a case study. So what I'm hearing loud and clear is if you roll out subscriptions, you can't think of those subscriptions in a silo as a single campaign and then have all of your other promotional activity that you really need to step back and look all encompassing across the entire pricing strategy. Right. I'll say the other two key areas, if anybody's out there listening that wants to know, are also at the beginning, the way that you set up the pricing and the plans that are available, there's a very distinct strategy that has to take place in how you're incentivizing people into subscription plans, what those benefits are, how those prices compare to the full prices, except how many options there are, how much friction there is in the process of that. So a lot of companies that have subscriptions, they might only have, let's say, 10% of their customers subscribing. Well, I like to have the majority of customers subscribing. So there's a whole strategy that takes place from the very beginning that starts allowing that to happen. And then the second area is what we call cancel save. So when folks are canceling, there also needs to be a very deep, detailed strategy on how to save these customers in a way that's a win both for the customer and the company. That makes sense in terms of like, 
It's one thing to position a product on a website and have subscription be the secondary option. It's a completely different thing for it to be like positioned as the primary offer. And the design of that, I agree with you, like 100% makes the difference. I'm going to bring up here on screen. This is a company that was started by a good friend, Amanda, and her strategy was really introduce a consumer and scribe and save is like almost positioned as like the default offer, like the amount yeah. of friction on here where like, I just look at it. I'm just like 34, 30, 49. It's like, well, I'm not an idiot. I know what the right. better deal is right. here, but she's not adding any friction in the checkout process. And it's so crystal clear, like how to choose a path and be able to go forward to the next step. Exactly. Defaulting to subscription is always the best practice. Yeah. In D2C brands in general, there's always been a lot of talk in terms of focusing on brand versus focusing on what some almost refer to performance marketing as like a negative thing in like the paid ad world. Like, how do you think about when you're supporting brands, the balance between where you're spending your time and energy on, I guess, like brand and awareness and community and the more tactical side of bottom of the funnel performance marketing? Well, they're all important. They all have a seat at the table and they will continue to do so. I will say though, in companies that are truly D2C companies, the bulk of the work will end up being the performance marketing related work. So if you have a new brand, obviously a lot of the branding is done at the beginning. It needs to be continually thought through and enhanced and expanded as needed and new content needs to be made and that will take up time. Awareness always needs to be part of the play. But when you're looking at stuff at a cost per acquisition, it's so much goes into doing performance marketing right. It often takes, if you're really doing it right, it often takes a pretty significant staff of folks that are drilling into that day in and day out, watching the numbers, optimizing the numbers, optimizing the bids, the buys, et cetera. So in the companies I have worked for, the larger number of employees and focus tends to be on the performance-based marketing, although the other things definitely have a seat at the table. Yeah. And I think even to add to that brand, yes, at the beginning, like brand needs to be done well and it needs to be look polished and the company needs to look like a credible company playing in that space. But the brand exercise doesn't have to end there. Like, and I think that's part of the thing when you talk about like performance marketing and the continual testing and iteration is that brands evolve. Like in absolutely in, when you have a brand that, especially if something is pre-revenue, like you can't define that brand without your customers being involved in that journey. And based on the feedback that you get, like that can evolve over time and be a more iterative process and doesn't necessarily have to be this brand is defined. And then five years later, we're going to completely rebrand to something else, throw everything out, which is a silly way to be able to do that if you have the ability to be able to evolve more naturally over time. Right. And over time, you're going to most likely be developing new products for the brand. You're going to be developing new campaigns for the brand. So yeah. brand is ever present, always there. And awareness, again, as part of the overall marketing strategy is always there. It's just as far as where is really the focus on a daily basis <laughs> for D2C, it tends to come back to the performance marketing. Yeah. 
Let's talk a little bit about the fractional CMO world. So for anybody who's unaware, fractional CMO oftentimes works less than full time for one or multiple different companies, as opposed to an in-house CMO who would be W2, most likely full time. You've spent your time throughout your career really in like a lot of different seats, whether that's at an agency, whether it's at a fractional CMO, whether it's working more closely or inside of a company. How did that career story evolve for you? And like, walk me through kind of your career journey and how you got to doing this fractional CMO work. Sure. Well, I've also been fortunate, I think, to have worked for primarily privately held companies. Mm -hmm. And those privately held companies have been the ones that I've worked for. They've all been fortunately very successful and they've all been very entrepreneurial in nature, stemming down from the owners. So in that environment and in those cultures, especially for certain companies that I've worked for, it was really always drilled down into you need to, if you're managing a brand, you need to manage this brand as if it's your own business. You need to learn everything about the business. You need to be responsible for the PL. You need to really understand the entire picture. So I really got into that. And also having worked for these very successful companies, it was very apparent the amount of money you could make if you were doing direct-to-consumer right. So when I left Guthy Ranker, which is a company that I worked at for 13 years with all the proactive and all the well-known brands, what I really wanted to do eventually was buy my own direct-to-consumer product company. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to start from scratch, develop a product and go from there. I'm very into scaling. So my thought was, okay, well, I'll just, I'll do consulting for a few years while I'm figuring out how and where I'm going to buy that company. Yep. So I learned a lot along the way about buying a small company, a separate story, but it's a very lengthy <laughs> process and there are no brokers available for small business buyers. But I really enjoyed managing my own schedule. I enjoyed working with different products. I enjoyed getting to know different types of companies, different cultures, And I also enjoyed, to be frank, being a little bit removed from some of the politics that you encounter. So I decided to stick with it as I continue to look for my company to buy. And it's just been great. It's really been great. And as you mentioned, it's something that's becoming more and more well-known. And what's interesting now, and part of the reason why it's becoming more well-known, it's the perfect storm of a variety of things that are happening or that have happened in the last few years. First, we had the Great Recession. Okay, then we have more recently, we have inflation and layoffs. Then we have companies struggling with growth due to inflation. And we've got the ever decreasing tenure of the average CMO. And we now have the increased complexity of the CMO role to the point where one CMO is really never going to be able to do it all in today's environment. And in the past few years, articles have come out about how there's actually now five distinct CMO archetypes. So on top of all of that, what I found out is that the majority of mid-sized companies don't even have a CMO. So there's a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of need for folks like myself that have very deep hands-on experience and that are able to come to the table, not as a typical consultant, but as an operator who are able to roll up their sleeves and assume that role or a portion of that role, whether that be on a part-time basis, a full-time basis, a project basis, 
six months, a year, two years, three months. It really depends on the client, but I really enjoy it. And as I mentioned before we got on the podcast, I'm juggling about six clients right now. So it's a lot of work, but it's great. I really enjoy being in control of my schedule and what I'm doing and what I'm working on. Yeah. And I've talked to fractional CMOs who some of them go high number of clients, lower number of hours. Some of them will say, I'm only going to do one or two clients. And those engagements are oftentimes more hours a week. And there's kind of pros and cons to all of that. If you have one client and that client transitions to a different strategy, then that's obviously all of your work right there. So that's an obvious kind of downside. And then on the other side, I know for me, like the context switching, a lot of, I think the best work that you do as a CMO is really like thinking through the strategy. And that doesn't necessarily happen when you're always sitting at a desk. Some of that best thinking might be on a walk or a thought that sparks from listening to a podcast or something like that. And so I think different people have different kind of philosophies as to how they want to approach that. And I think that's, what's interesting about this world of like fractional CMO work is that depending on what type of industries you want to do, what type of work you want to do, what type of CMO archetype, to your point, you are, you can kind of go find your right mix and to be able to work within that space that you get passion out of for a rate that you're getting good, fair to really good compensation for in terms of your time, but also kind of unlocking this time flexibility piece as well. I was reading a Wall Street Journal article from the other week that was a really interesting, like post-pandemic article that was saying, Basically, like the power move now for the white collar workers is being able to get a gym workout in the middle of the day. <laughs> and that is the ultimate sign of luxury exactly. and power. And I don't know if I fully agree that that in itself is the <laughs> ultimate sign of luxury and power, but I kind of get the point that what the reporter was kind of like insinuating in terms of right. uh, what people value in their lives now. Right, exactly. And have you been able to work that into your schedule? I have been able to work that into my schedule and I constantly just need to put a better buffer for my meeting right after, or I just need to, I guess, like, I don't know, shower faster or run faster. <laughs> what are both of those things for somebody like making this transition? I think like, there's a lot of questions of like things I'm sure you wish you would have known before you went into this consulting, which you really intended to go into it as almost like an interim thing until you bought this other company. Like what's something that like you wish you would have known going in? Well, I was fortunate to pre-plan. I had about six months of a runway before I left that job where I could start pre-planning. So fortunately, I was able to do what I would advise to people to do. And most often they don't or are not thinking of, but you should pre-plan as far in advance as you can that you're going to do this. Number one, number two, if you can, depending on what your situation is, it's hard to know how confidential you would need to be or what you can say to your network. But if you can start getting even one or two clients prior to leaving, even if it's a small job, then you've essentially got your business running, right? Mm -hmm. You can also ahead of time establish your business as an entity. You can get all of that paperwork done. You could potentially be working on your website, get that done. But I would really advise trying to get a client or two before you leave your full-time job. And Depending on your situation, you may want to create for yourself a two to three month financial buffer mm -hmm. uh, just in case. 
as you go out and find your first one client, your first two clients, like how do you think somebody entering that should figure out how to price themselves? How does somebody reasonably figure out what their value is in the market and what they can charge? And like, how do you think payment structure and like terms should be set up in an ideal situation? Well, there are kind of average slash typical hourly and project rates out there. So if somebody does a little bit of research or if anybody wants to reach out to me directly, I'm happy to talk them through it. it really depends on what level you're at, right? But I tend to do very little if no hourly work. My work is either advisory, project, or retainer. And I can calculate in my mind, I know what my hourly rate is. So I can calculate, okay, for this type of project, you know, it's probably going to be this many hours. I do give folks a bit of a discount off of my hourly rate as I'm calculating for a project or a retainer. So it's not that hard to determine, but you do need to know where you stand as far as what's typical out there. What about like interactions with the company? Fractional CMOs kind of, they walk that line between like, they want to be in-house enough that they're aware of the context of the business. They have the relationships across different functions in the business. Ultimately though, you can't be at everything if you're not full-time. And so occasionally there's going to be that offsite that you're not going to be able to attend because you have other commitments. You're not going to be in every meeting. And so I think there's like pros and cons to that. There's definitely big companies that I've worked at where I've sat in meetings where I'm sitting there going, why the heck am I in this meeting? These (laughs) other 20 people and like, were we necessary for this or could we have read the brief? Like, how do you think it through that like balance of like how you operate with your clients or with your partners? It's a good question. And it really just depends on the client or the project or the situation. So I've had interim roles that have been lengthy where I really was just assuming the interim CMO role. So I was pretty much as involved as you would be if I had been in that full-time role. There's been other ones where I've been brought in by other CMOs. So that's sort of part of the fractional CMO arena that folks don't really think about is if you're a CMO and you're overwhelmed, need bandwidth, don't have a certain skill set, bringing in a fractional CMO, somebody that's at your level that can help you, whether you want it behind the scenes or out in front, it's up to you. But in those roles, I've been given assignments such as, okay, we don't have a direct-to-consumer arm. I'm overwhelmed with my entire job over here. Can you just (laughs) take this line of products, bring in a virtual team, set up the entire strategy, the entire go-to-markets, the channels, everything, And just keep me informed on how it's going and all sort of yay or nay key decisions. So it really just depends. I can't say there's one I can think of where I ever felt left out. I may have been fortunate in that. So I can't say there was a situation where I felt left out or where I felt like, oh God, if I only would have known that. I think usually, well, the clients I've had have been good enough to inform me on something I need to know that's important or to bring me into those types of things. Yeah. And that example there, that's actually an interesting point. Like, Because the typical example you would think of for a fractional CMO would be going into an organization where there is no senior executive level marketing full-time person. Most of the time, like there might be some mid-level managers and like folks who are working on like day-to-day tactical execution. But the example that you just gave is like, there is a full-time CMO, but maybe they're bringing in somebody fractional to help with 
a new product launch, new line of business, or really could potentially even just like take a step back and be like a fresh set of eyes to see like, what have I missed here? I know there's been definitely been times in my career where I'm just like too close to the problem and everybody around me has been on that same journey with me that like, as soon as we bring in that new teammate, they're just seeing things with this like fresh perspective that we've been just walking in day in and out. But I also think to like a younger me in my first CMO role, I'm not sure that I would have had the confidence and humility to be able to make that move as well. Like now, I think a few roles in, I can definitely see how there are instances in my career where that probably would have been the fastest thing to capture the learning, to be able to bring somebody in who has a distinct skill set that can round me out to your point. Like there's so many different areas of being a good CMO now that I feel confident in saying that there's nobody that can master all of the different flavors, techniques, strategies, and technology to be able to bring life across an entire portfolio. Exactly. I mean, I would say probably 25, maybe 30% of my clients are other CMOs. But to your point, yeah, there are folks, and I would say most tend to be earlier in their CMO career. They're worried, like, how's this going to look? Da, da, da. I did have one client where I was just advising her and she was paying for it herself behind the scenes confidentially. So that's sort of another option, mm. sort of bring in somebody as a personal mentor, but don't let the company know if you're worried about that. Yeah, that falls into almost like your executive coach that just happens to also really know marketing right. well, <laughs> because a lot of these roles, like you do work with a lot of executive coaches and they know all the MBA case studies and they know all of the leadership principles and all of that. But sometimes like when you just need good advice, like you want to have somebody who's walked the walk, like within the function that you're responsible for. So yeah, I could definitely see that as well. Right. Um, I, have, I have a partner who somewhat of a strong acquaintance of hers from a while back started a job recently as the CMO of a very large cellular service company. So he jumped in and almost on, I think, month two, if not month one, he called her and said, okay, look, she's a real expert in deep media analytics, especially DRTV media analytics. And he's like, okay, look, I've got a million things going on. I've got huge growth goals. I can't do all this. You're amazing at this. I'm going to bring you on and you're going to just lead this media strategy, figure it out, work with my people, get it done. And yeah. then that was going in so well that he actually brought in another partner of ours to help on another thing. So yeah. It's been great for him. And he was able to show for his board quick wins faster than he would have. Yeah. So it can be beneficial if folks are open to it. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And like the incentives in theory should be aligned because like in a lot of the roles that I've been and not a secret how full-time W2 CMOs get compensated. There's a cash component. There's an equity component that normally vests. And then sometimes most of the time there's a bonus component for your short-term incentives as well. But if you are in that position where you're taking a look at like what is the best thing for the business long term, in some instances, that next best thing, even for your selfish perspective, for the equity to be able to grow, there are different CMOs for different phases of growth for sure. Yeah. And good so point. even good even point. being able to know a CMO that is a 10 million to a hundred million revenue CMO is a completely different CMO. 
than a 500 million to 1 billion revenue CMO. You're talking about a completely different game with completely different strategies. And I think having the humility to understand like which leg of the race are you really good at holding that baton and mm-hmm. like where are your limits is something that's really important for folks to know personally. That and like you might enjoy the work at one phase a lot more than you enjoy the work at a different phase. And right. I've learned throughout my career, like I can do the Six Sigma operational cost cutting <laughs> stuff. I just like it absolutely drains me and I don't get any energy out of it at all, even though I can do it if you like really force me to work on cost cutting exercises. Like I would much rather <laughs> be building the next thing. And that's just something that I know about myself now. Right. As you take a look at this year and the environment that we're in, there's so much happening in like in the DC space. Like I don't even know where to start. Like platforms and technology is getting better and better. We had buy now, pay later, make like the hot entry. And then now it seems like it might be making the quick exit just as fast as it came in. I think the most interesting thing is really like this transition to the cookie-less world and like marketing after that. Like, what are the trends that you're keeping an eye on right now and that you think other D2C, whether you're in D2C space or whether you're in the subscription space that you should be keeping a close eye on? Well, I think overall what we've seen is that more broadly due to inflation and everything else that's going on there, the focus is slanting much more towards performance-based marketing. I mean, it's much more about profit right now than it is about revenue for a lot of companies due to what's happening in the environment overall. And dealing with what happened with Facebook and the cost of that media, I mean, folks are having to get creative with how they're acquiring customers I would say nobody's nailed it 100% yet. Everybody's in the process of figuring it out. And folks that really haven't looked at cost per customer as closely in the past are now starting to do that. Yeah. And I think like in the past, there's a question for some marketers for are they good or were they lucky with the campaigns that they were running in performance marketing? And you mentioned earlier, like being able to do that day in and day out, there's a lot of rigor and there's a lot of structure and there's a lot of very purposeful testing and scaling that you need to be able to do. And now I think because it's not easy anymore with the change specifically, I think we're both referring to the iOS 14.5 change where Apple is essentially increasing consumers' ability to be able to opt in for privacy or opt out of tracking. Exactly. Today, you can't hide behind poor execution that in order to succeed, you always should have been testing and having your hand on the dial. But today you can't hide behind not doing that anymore because like the days of just setting broad targeting, I can't even imagine running the same ad for three months anymore. And there was definitely a time period where you could. Right, exactly. I mean, I think what's coming into play now is whereas large, successful direct consumer companies like I've worked for, they had the benefit of being successful and having the budget and the understanding of testing deep and really developing best practices at every single touch point, but not surface level, extremely many layers down. And other folks are starting to discover these other layers, but many don't even know that they're there. Mm -hmm. So it's something I see sort of day in and day out. And we we do in our organization with clients, they don't know the best practices because they haven't had to use them before. 
Yeah. And as you know, like raising your next round or exiting out of that, it used to be when you take a look at the deer children of D to C, whether it was like a Casper, which they were significantly underwater on every mattress that they <laughs> sold when they went public. And like, that was the biggest shocker reading their SEC filings. There is like just how much they were losing on every mattress that they sold to Bonobos gets purchased. And a few short years later, the appetite to continue investing in something that couldn't sustain itself came to an end. So we are in this era now of you can't just raise millions of dollars and create something that you sell unprofitably and bank on that being your strategy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Any like parting words here as we wrap up, any advice for somebody who wants to get into grow their marketing career and they're looking at all these different paths that they can go? Like what words of wisdom would you have given to a younger Lisa there? Well, I think a couple of things. Again, I think I was lucky. Certain things that I would advise to others just happened to me. But one of the things that I found is important and beneficial for me is working for companies that are successful and well-known. Even to this day, I mean, I still get calls if there's a sweepstakes company (laughs) because I work one of the top sweepstakes companies. So Working at a company like that and having it on your resume, even if it's for a short period of time, it will give you leverage towards your next job. It will give you leverage if you do consulting later. That's an important point. The next thing I would say is you need to think about, are you going to be a broad marketer or a sort of a specific skill set marketer? And I think I benefited from in a way, having both. I think I benefited from having the broad overview of knowing how to run a business that was a D2C company from a Mm P&L perspective was very important. At the same time, because we were only doing D2C, I also got very deep into the skill set and best practices of D2C kind of across the entire acquisition to retention journey. So Again, I was lucky for that. But I think if you have the opportunity to get some of both, it's going to be beneficial for you. I also think that volunteering for special projects is really key. There's not often opportunities for lower level folks to get the limelight, to really let their skills shine, to get some prominence with the company. So if you can either get selected or volunteer for company-wide special projects that you will be part of the leadership team or leading yourself. I think that's also a great way to advance in your career. Yeah. A lot of great advice there so much. For anybody who's watching, I'm going to put Lisa's LinkedIn up here on the screen. Lisa, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. It was a pleasure. It was great. This has been Destination CMO. This is a podcast about the most important stories in business and technology told through the lens of a senior marketer because marketing careers are oftentimes highly specialized. They're rarely linear. And our guests share the stories and the insights from their professional marketing journey. If you have enjoyed this episode of Destination CMO, make sure to like and subscribe wherever you're watching this. And we'll see you next time. This has been Destination CMO, hosted by Vincent Famvan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. 
We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.